0: One of my best friends in college is named Craig Lee, and when Craig graduated, he became a very successful photojournalist in San Francisco, and he settled in the city. Um, and, I, and I say that, by the way, I didn't know this, but I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, and so when you're in the Bay Area, you don't call it San Francisco Bay Area, you call it the Bay Area, and you don't call it San Francisco, you call it the city, I didn't know that I did that till I was an adult and somebody brought that to my attention. So it's just kind of a cultural thing, all right? So, but Craig settled in the city, and, um, and that's where he lived, and he got married to Holly. and We loved Holly, and it's been a number of years ago now. It's probably about 11 years that we went back to do their wedding ceremony. I was living in San Diego at the time. We went up to San Francisco to do the wedding, had a great time, and it was one of my favorite times in San Francisco. There are things that I don't like about San Francisco, but there's things that I like about it. And we had a great time. We stayed in a little Italy district, and we ate. And we ate. And we ate. And it was like international cuisine, and there was the food from the wedding. And then when it was all over, we went back to Sacramento, where Craig was from. And because he's Chinese, we had dim sum at a big restaurant. And I felt like this was the never Ending meal. It was like all we did was eat and eat and eat. And we're going to talk about a never ending meal today as we continue our series on classic rocks. It sounds like classic rock and roll, but we've said that it's not. We're talking about kind of those rock solid foundational narratives on Jesus's life that you hear about sometimes all the way from Sunday school up, and we're going to look at them a little bit more deeply during this series, and that's what we're doing today. But because we have talked a little bit about rock and roll, I'm going to get in a little rock and roll story. Not that I would advocate rock and roll for everybody all the time. Not all of it is good, of course, um, but there are songs that are part of our culture and sort of fun. There was Craig and I both like the band that originated from the city and my senior year in high school they came out with a song that has since become sort of my generation's song for, for the city um, do you know what band I'm talking about? Anybody want to guess? Journey, right? You know and I still listen to that song you know lights you know when the lights go down in the city when I cross the Bay Bridge to go see my buddy Craig I often turn that song on for sentimental reasons so that, there's, there's my story for that now we're going to get into something more important though the meal Oh, that sounds pretty good, too. A never-ending meal. Sounds like heaven, doesn't it? Well, we're getting there. What story am I talking about? What narrative am I talking about when I talk about a never-ending meal um, earlier in Jesus' ministry? Sunday school story. Good guess. First guess, Brandon hit it right on the nose. We're going to talk about the feeding of the 5,000 today. When we talk about the feeding of the 5,000, we usually talk about Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? Truthfully, the theme of this passage is that Jesus provides. And he always provides. He is the great provider. But, there's a secondary part of it. Jesus doesn't usually just provide, but he provides through people. Through us. And in this case, Jesus is not the one who serves the meal. The meal is served by his disciples. So, It's actually, the story is really the disciples feeding the 5,000. And that's what we're going to look at today. We'll find the passage in uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. But before we go there, I want to share something interesting with you. And that is that this is one of only two narratives in all the Bible that is recorded four times. Four times the story is told. It's told in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we're looking at Luke today, but the other passages are Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21, Mark chapter 6, verses 32 through 44, and John chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. And those are important to know because they add different insights and details, and we'll refer to them occasionally. But I've said that there were two narratives. Can you guess what the other narrative is in the Bible that's recorded four times? the crucifixion and resurrection. So that makes this sound like this is a pretty important story that it was recorded that many times. So we're going to take a look at it today. And the first thing we're going to see is that the disciples feed the 5,000, but they don't start real fast. They start by seeking rest. We'll see that in the first paragraph, verses 10 through 11. Let me read that. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what, he had, what they had done. Then he took them with him, And they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Here he calls them the apostles. Later on he will call them the twelve because there's twelve of them, and he'll usually call them the disciples in this narrative. Disciple literally means a follower. So they were followers of Jesus. But. At a point in time, Jesus will make them his apostles, his messengers. He will give them this message and he'll say, now you go out and do it. At this point, they're usually called disciples. Occasionally, he'll refer to them as apostles because that's who they'll become. But why would he call them apostles here? The reason he does it is actually really important. Sometimes these little things don't seem like that big a deal, but it really is. Because just in the first six verses of this chapter he talks about their first apostolic ministry, their first missionary journey. He actually supernaturally empowers them to share his message with others in the villages around, to talk about the kingdom coming, and he actually empowers them to heal people. And he says, don't bring anything with you. I'll provide for you. People will provide for you. And apparently there's food and lodging for them during this whole journey. And so now they're coming back, having performed as apostles for the first time, and they're telling him what happened. Mark says that they gathered around him and it appears that they're near the shore of the Sea of Galilee with the sun shining off of the crystal blue waters there and they're probably huddled together sitting down in a circle, the 13 of them, and Jesus is in the middle and they're all taking turns excitedly talking about what happened. We picture these guys, the kind of garb they'd wear and the hair they had because of the pictures and so forth we have. Sometimes we forget that they were probably college-aged guys very excited about what God has done, and very exhausted. And Jesus is a little tired too, so after he's heard them for a while, he says, we're going to withdraw, and we're going to essentially go on a retreat. We're going away. And we're going to go to another place, and he takes them to Bethsaida, which is on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, and it's almost like, why there? Because Bethsaida is the ancient name of a town, and people still would call it that, but it in recent years, changed its name to Julius in honor of Julia, the daughter of the emperor uh, Caesar Augustus, and it had become the capital of that region. So this is a major city, not a solitary place. Yet everybody says it's a solitary place. Only Luke says that it gives us a name. So what's going on here? Probably the best answer is that there was nothing near where they were going. And the nearest landmark was this major city called Bethsaida, but it wasn't that close. But at least it gets us on the map to about where they were at that time. This is important for two reasons. It tells us this is a historic event, gives us kind of an idea where they were. But it's also important because the three verses before this, verses seven through nine, Herod. we're told that Herod Antipas is still in charge of Galilee. He's the Tetrarch, a ruler of Galilee, and he has recently beheaded Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, and now he would like to see Jesus. And so Jesus does something very interesting. Not only does he take his disciples on a retreat, but he gives Herod the slip, and he moves into another district that he doesn't have jurisdiction over. So it's interesting how God is in control of all these events taking place that we don't always see. So he gets them to where they need to be, and how did they get there? Matthew says they took a boat. They got a boat and they started going. But the people came and followed them. And you can actually follow on foot. The lake isn't that big. They they could see him in the distance, and they were walking around the lake and following him as they went, and they were gathering other people and telling them, you've got to go hear this guy speak. You've got to see what he's doing. John says they were particularly interested in his healing ministry. And so as they went from town to town, they would go to people in their households, the 8 or 15 people that these people had in their life, and they would say, tell everybody you know, and they would tell the people they knew. And they would tell the people they knew, and they would tell the people they knew until all these people would gather. And that's what we do in ministry, right? We repeat it again and again. It's it's, it's there in almost every passage that you tell the people around you you have an impact on their lives. You invite them. And so we encourage you to do the same thing. People that you live with, go to school with, work with, tell them about how God has healed your life. When it's appropriate, when the time's right, tell them what God's done in your life. Tell them what he's done in the lives of others that you know. Tell him, you know, what he's doing in the church. Tell him what you're learning from your Bible. Invite them to come to the church or the ice cream social. Um, and, and different times it's appropriate, but we encourage you to do that. In this case, that's what happened until they had gathered this large group who was trying to get to that destination before Jesus did. Whether they got there first or not, I'm not for sure, but John says that when Jesus got there, they found a flat space that was sort of elevated, uh, probably have sort of an amphitheater, perfect for their situation, and that there was grass, and that it was near the Passover, which means it was spring. And we can calculate about A.D. 29, about a year before Jesus was uh, crucified and resurrected. So we have the setting. They're there to rest, and all these people come, and they crash their party. And Jesus gets really, really angry because he wants to rest, right? Jesus turns around instead, and he starts to speak to them and heal them. Matthew and Mark say that Jesus had compassion on them. And Mark adds that they were to him like sheep without a shepherd. Now, it's interesting. There's two things that came to my mind as I read this. One is that today we are Jesus' disciples because we are his followers. So we should do what Jesus did. And isn't it striking that Jesus, the supernatural God-man, regularly took time to rest? took time to go on a retreat, took time for vacation, so to speak. So we should do the same. But is it not also interesting that he didn't ever take time out from God and he was always ready to serve whenever called upon? I was on a vacation one time and as we were driving home, we were on a highway and this jeep, Flipped off the highway and rolled about four or five times. And I shot up a quick prayer and took off because I said, I'm on vacation. Somebody else will take care of them. Right? No, I, I mean, I remember that time I thought, gee, I'm on vacation. And truthfully, I felt like, I don't want to stop. I want to get home. I'm tired. And I think Carrie said to me, You really probably should stop. And I'm thinking, I don't want to stop, but this looks pretty bad. But I thought, Oh, I probably should stop. I don't know what I could do, but, you know, I'm a pastor. And they might need me. So I pulled over and I ran over there. And I had been working as a chaplain with the sheriff's deputies at that time, too. So I thought, you know, this situation is entirely foreign to me. And I ran over there, and there were other people there that were also off-duty but were there, emergency personnel. It was amazing how many people had background that stopped and came over to help. The lady was okay. She was upside down, couldn't get out. She was just trapped and waiting. So my job, as they found out who I was and as I talked to her, is they gave me the cell phone to call her husband. So I called the husband and told him what had happened and how to get there and so forth. and Then I held her hand and prayed for her. And then they said, okay, everything's okay. And they had it under control and I took off. But it was a lesson. You're always ready to serve God whenever he calls you to. Now, the second thing uh, that we see is that they could not imagine feeding these people, feeding the, the 5,000. Verses 12 through 14. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Now, there's a discussion that's going on here and when we read all four accounts we realize that there is quite a bit of discussion. Imagine over the course of time. First of all, that these guys would stay that long to listen to Jesus and have him minister to them. That's a long time. We in ministry refer to noon as the sacred hour. You know, I mean if you if, if we're having a ministry, if our if our service goes past noon, even if we start at eleven o'clock it's almost like time for mutiny. You know, I mean, people get visibly upset and you get a little nervous if you're up front because you can see the agitation. Uh, but Jesus, he had people, he was holding on to their attention for all this time. And it's getting late in the afternoon. And they're thinking, well, they're going to have to go a long ways. And not that they have to have a place to lodge in it's springtime, but they would probably have to find homes where they could get food of this nature. And so they're concerned. So ultimately, they go to Jesus, and Jesus says, you take care of it. But specifically, he talks, according to John, to Philip, who was kind of one of his unheralded leaders. Um, usually, he's kind of the fifth guy mentioned after Peter, James, John, um, and Andrew. And he says, what, what do you suggest we do, Philip? And Philip turns kind of analytical. And he's, he's like, well, assuming that we could even get to some place and back with food, it would cost us so much money. It would, it would be, I'm calculating about eight months' wages. We can't even afford to do it. And then Andrew pops up. And Andrew, you know, he's always kind of the idea man, kind of out-of-the-box guy, always trying to help out. And he says, hey, wait a minute, I found a little boy here. And this boy has three little barley lo- um, loaves of bread, and he has two little fish. Now, if you lived by the Sea of Galilee in those days, that was your basic meal. You have some bread and you have some fish and you put it together and when, Jew- when Mexican tourists came to the area, they would refer to that as a Jewish taco, okay, a fish taco. And so that was, that's what they ate all the time. So he says, we've got some, but he says, not for all these people. Mark says there were more than 5,000 people because... They didn't count the women and children. They were just counting the men at that point. So we don't know how many there were. That's an astounding number. And the guys are just saying, they're terrified. We can't do this, Jesus. We can't do this. What's wrong with this scene? What are they, what are they missing? I mean, think about it. Didn't he just send them on the supernatural journey in a sense? Didn't he just provide all the food that they needed for however long they were on, for each of them individually found places for them to stay and have them eat? Couldn't he therefore do something spectacular and supernatural in this situation if they trusted in him to work through them again? But they, they missed it. You know, it's like they just couldn't see past it. They couldn't see the supernatural because they were too caught up in the natural. And they said, we, we can't do this. So Jesus takes control and he says, let's organize everybody and set them up and we'll go ahead and we'll do this. I'm going to help you out. Have you ever been terrified? Ever felt like God was calling you to do something? You really sensed that this was something you were supposed to do. But maybe you didn't really want to do it and you were terrified. Maybe it was a job promotion that you were afraid of but you kind of knew God wanted you to apply for it. Maybe it was the move that you didn't want to make, you didn't want to move, but you needed to. Maybe it was you know, going into the military or joining a missionary, becoming a missionary, let, moving far away. Maybe it was asking that girl to marry you. Maybe it was starting a church. And it wasn't what you were planning on doing or wanted to do exactly at that time, but it was... You knew you had to do it. Can we step out in faith and believe God for that? Like the song we were singing. What is it that God would want you to do? Then the next thing we see is that they feed them through Jesus. Verses 15 through 17, uh, with Jesus' assistance. The disciples did so. They did what he said, got everything ready. Everybody sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. See, the disciples actually did the serving. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now, people will often talk about the similarities between this meal and the Last Supper and try to draw some spiritual connections and so forth. But truthfully, that's how they did every meal in those days. You would pray a standard Jewish blessing over it. You'd break the food, and you'd hand it out. So it's just, it just basically a meal at that point. The real interesting connection is the prophetic connection. If you go back to 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 through 44, you have the story of Elisha, one of the great prophets in the history of Israel. He fed 100 men with only 20 loaves of bread, and there was food left over. So Jesus is now again being equated with Elisha but he's even that much greater than one of the greatest prophets of all the, the thing that really blows people's mind is that this even happened and it's interesting that there's been all sorts of research and efforts throughout history to try to disprove this event stemming from people saying well what happened is it just inspired people to get out their own food to one guy going so far as to say I think what happened is he hypnotized them all, which of course would be a miracle in itself. Even for those of us who truly believe that this happened, as I do, I don't understand how it happened. Did did they multiply in his hands as he put them in um, to the baskets? Did they multiply in the baskets? Did they multiply in the hands of the disciples as they handed them? We don't know. It's a miracle. You can't really fully grasp miracles but we know that something incredible happened on that day. Now, people will say, where'd they get all the baskets from? Actually, people carried little wicker baskets with them. They were like their lunch pails in those days. And so that's not a problem. They had 12 of them, um, and they probably used other people's, and then at the end, they gathered everything together in the 12 that they had, and so they had 12 left over which would be symbolic, again, of the 12 tribes of Israel, probably that Jesus feeds, had come to feed the 12 tribes of Israel. But what really blows my mind is that they had 12 left over. Think about that. This is that whole idea of a never-ending meal. He could have kept on going. If there were 10,000, if there were 20,000, if there was a million, he could have kept on going. He had as much as they needed and more every time. So it shows how Jesus provides. I thought it was striking that Jesus, again, the God-man, gives thanks for this food. And what an example it is for us. We're pretty flippant in our country when it comes to thanking God for our meals because we have food all the time. We have whatever we want. In most countries in the world, you're lucky if you get one meal a day. And if you know the Lord, you give thanks, and you have a heartfelt prayer every time you eat. But we're so spoiled and frankly somewhat snobby about our food that we just, why do we have to thank God for that? Certainly in some circumstances we need to be appropriate in how we thank God that we're not grandstanding or making people uncomfortable that don't know the Lord. But we should always be talking to God and thanking him for the food that he's given us. The other thing that I think is very instructive is Jesus could have done this whole thing himself without their assistance. But once again, he pulls them all in, and we're going to be seeing more and more of that. It's this idea that Paul talks about later in 2 Timothy 2.2, that we train people to train people to train people. Jesus multiplied himself. Great leaders multiply themselves in great leaders. They keep building and keep bringing other people into ministry. That's what we should all be doing, whatever our job is, and that's what we should be doing in ministry. Now, let's wrap this thing up and look at some practical applications for us. The first one is just the word rest. Make sure that you get rest. And that may be different for some of you. you know, Some of you may be um, that you want to go take a run or you want to do some painting, listen to music, read a book, take a nap, you know, whatever it is. But make sure that you rest and get some refreshment and get your mind off of all the things that are bothering you. But when you do that, Uh, And and by the way, take a vacation. You know, make sure you take a vacation. But when you take a vacation, make sure you give online so we can take vacations. (laughs) Have you seen that lately? We keep putting that up. Yeah, so make sure that... Okay. Um, Thank you very much for my vacation in advance. Um, But but we need to do that, don't we? We all, even I, I need to get away. And it's hard sometimes. You know, I can give all these excuses. Well, if I get away, I'll have all this work that's going to back up when I come back. But we need to get away, get our mind off of things, and, and it actually gives us a fuller perspective when we come back, and then we have more energy. But you never take a vacation from Jesus. You never take a vacation from your Bible, and you're always prepared to do what he'd call you to do. The second thing that I'd look at is challenges. What challenges has God put before you? And only you can answer this question, but what is there that God may be asking you to do in your life? And you're a little bit scared of it. And I encourage you to take that step. You know, I've discovered that I like my life to go really smooth and everything easy without any ripples. But I've discovered through the years that I'm actually happier, more fulfilled, and walk closer to God when I'm living a bit on the edge. Um, So I'd encourage you, within reason, to live a little bit on the edge. Take that little step of faith in whatever it is in your life. And then... The last area that I'd like to look at is this whole idea of me to we. There's a book called Me to We. I think that's a clever name. And it's this idea of Jesus teaches things. It's from him to us um, and the things that he's teaching us to do. And so we look at that and we say, well, you know, we're the disciples today, right? So Jesus works through us. How does Jesus feed people today? How does he take care of people today? You know what? He does it primarily through you, and through the people of this world. Does anybody here sell seed? You sell seed, right? Rex, or kind of, you know, you work with seeds. And and other people here, anybody plant seeds? Stan, I see Stan. There's people, my wife does. Anybody work, you know, amory, does he take care of, the, all the stuff on the ranches, the machinery, the wells, and stuff like that. Begin to get the picture. People that work in, in distribution centers and warehouses. You know, aren't you working in a warehouse? I mean, and, and, um, and Kurt does, does distribution stuff. You take all this stuff that people give of different kinds, and then you have people that do the computers that work all that. You get the picture? There isn't a job that a person has in this room, including raising kids full-time, that isn't a ministry. You are doing the ministry. We, it's not me. You are the ones that are the stewards of this planet. We all do this together. And if you do that in the spirit of Jesus Christ, with a smile on your face, with enthusiasm, and you do a great job at what you do, it's amazing the impact you can have on the people around you. If you get into a small group, our small groups service things like Modesto Gospel Mission, um, Oak Valley Care Center. We work with Crisis Pregnancy Center, with Relay for Life. What if those groups doubled or tripled in the years to come? What if other churches did that too? Begin to see how we could change this community. To begin to understand how we could change our world if we really lived and t- the way we should and as Jesus calls us to. For all of us, we could have that kind of impact. I would encourage you also, as you have opportunities, get into a small group because our small groups are going to train people so that they can grow in their relationship with the Lord and then share what they're learning with other people. And always, you know, never be offended when people ask you to do things in ministry and be willing to ask others. Do you know what the first thing that I did in ministry? I set it up and took down chairs for our college ministry at San Jose State. And then this guy came to town and he was there for a week he was a special um, speaker with the group that I was with and they had to have somebody do all the physical arrangements and they asked me to do physical arrangements I was so flattered I had no idea that I'd ever be a pastor or that I'd even speak at that point I was just trying to grow my relationship with the Lord as a young believer and that they would want me to be part of the team in some way touched me more than it ever, anything ever did before or after that touched me more than when they wanted me to speak because I was part of the team. I was able to make a contribution. That was a huge step for me. And so for all of us, whatever it is, we all need to look for those opportunities to help others grow and for us to grow. If you have a job, be a good worker and help other people do things. Hand off to them. Let them try. Let them fail. Help them grow. Don't hold on to the ball. Don't be a ball hog. And with your kids, Teach them how to cook. Teach them how to work on the car. Teach them how to balance their checkbook. Teach them how to have a quiet time. You know, those are things that we do because we love them. Kids at the time may say, I don't like this, but they'll thank you later when they get into situations where they have to do those things. So you see the importance of delegation. Now, the important thing, of course, that comes, all comes back to is our relationship with Jesus, and we would want to encourage you to come into a relationship with him if you haven't already for that we talk often of the abcs of salvation very simple way of putting it we ask you to consider these things and to if you believe to admit that you are a sinner in need of a savior to be believe that jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave and see choose to follow christ and place your faith in him alone and if you do that please come and talk to us we'd love to talk to you about that Now, we started off today talking about a wedding banquet or feast. There's another one coming, and it's going to take place in heaven. And I am looking forward to that. In fact, I'm most convinced that God will provide food for us in heaven for the rest of eternity. And I believe that because of passages like this. And because if you stop and think about it, every bite that I have taken since birth, and you have, has come from God. He's provided it. And he's provided that for all the world, for all of history up till today. And he can certainly provide for us for the rest of eternity. That's a never-ending meal inspired by never-ending love. And we should certainly be grateful. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you, and we are indeed very grateful for how you have provided for us in so many different ways. And we think today specifically of how you've provided for every meal and that you provide the strength and energy to do the tasks that you would ask us to do. Help us to step out in faith. Help us to look for opportunities to challenge others. Help us to be encouraged when we're challenged and help us to each of us grow to know you better um, and be expressions of you in work and play and whatever we do. Pray that all of life, will be a ministry for each of us as we trust more in you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.